Today's episode is a rebroadcast of an event that took place on October 15th at the Center on National Security at Fordham Law, virtually. It's a wonderful discussion between two people who have recently written memoirs, Samantha Power, who wrote The Education of an Idealist, and John Brennan, who is a fellow at the Center on National Security and who just wrote Undaunted. It's a conversation that goes over much ground from today's politics to the politics of the past, to geopolitical issues that are confronting us in the next administration, to human rights issues, and to the rule of law in today's challenging world. I think you'll enjoy it. Welcome to Vital Interest. My name is Karen Greenberg, and I am the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. Our podcast is designed to help you understand security in its many dimensions. Each week, we will bring you thoughtful voices from the worlds of policy, government, law, journalism, and advocacy. We will look at the challenges that confront us today and tomorrow, from pandemic to climate change, from terrorism to population migration, from war to peace, all with an eye towards the rule of law, the protection of human rights, and the respect for civil liberties. Vital Interest Podcast is committed to making the world we live in more comprehensible, the part we play in it more engaged, and our futures more secure. It is our way here at CNS of connecting with our times and with one another. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. I'm Karen Greenberg, the Director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School, and I am delighted to invite you to join us in a conversation today between former CIA Director John Brennan, former UN Ambassador Samantha Power, to discuss John Brennan's new book, Undaunted, which I have to say is a perfect title, as we're going to find out in this conversation. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about our two speakers. Ambassador Samantha Power joins us today from Harvard, where she is a professor of practice at the Kennedy School and at Harvard Law School. From 2013 to 2017, she served at the US Ambassador to the United Nations. Um, and after that, she served on the National Security Council as Special Assistant to President Obama for Multilateral Affairs and Human Rights. She is the author of numerous books, and I bet is writing another one even as we speak. Um, she is most known for how she arrived on the scene with a problem from Hell, America and the Age of Genocide, which won the Pulitzer Prize. She is also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Chasing the Flame, One Man's Fight to Save the World, which I encourage you all to read if you haven't about Sergio DeMello, which is just a terrific read, as are the other ones. And most recently, she wrote The Education of Idealist, a memoir which was named one of the best books of the year for 2019 by the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many other major news outlets. Um, so it's perfect that we have somebody who wrote a memoir interviewing John Brennan, who has just written this new book. After 33 years of government service, John Brennan joined Obama at the White House. Um, he was assistant to the President for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism. After that, as you know, he was director of the CIA. John Brennan, I have to say this because I'm so proud of it, went to Fordham School, uh, undergraduate school. He graduated in 1977. That's when I graduated too. Um, and he is now a distinguished fellow for global security here. And now he has a new career, which is writing. And if you didn't know it before, you know it now. He is absolutely a terrific writer and you should read this book. Um, I am very much looking forward to this conversation. You know how to post your questions in the Q&A and as they come up and as they make sense, Samantha Power will refer to them. So John, Samantha, take it away. Great, thank you so, so much, Karen. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here with my uh, former colleague uh, and my good friend, John Brennan. Uh, John, uh, we, uh, I just to see you again, to have read you, uh, it's, it's such a pleasure. So thank you for involving me in, in this event. It's a, an excuse for me to catch up with you and find out how you're thinking about things that are keeping me up all night. Uh, so looking for some consolation, I just, and some solace here out of this conversation. Um, so uh, where I want to start, first of all, is to encourage those of you, we have a, a very, very large audience, uh, but to, uh, at any time it strikes you to submit your questions in the Q&A, at the bottom of the Zoom and those will come scrolling in and I will do a mix here of uh, uh, asking questions of John and then drawing on your questions or any comments you have back in, in response to what you hear. 
So that's how we're going to do it. So you can start anytime. There's not going to be any fixed, you know, kind of marking point for the audience. So, so have them roll in. Um, John, this, I want to uh, sort of take this in a, in a couple different batches. First, I really want to draw out of you uh, your personal story that you've told so beautifully in the book. I, I don't want to do it at such length that people think they don't have to buy the book because it's such a moving story and a, and a wonderful story into an Irish immigrant like me, uh, a particularly resonant story. So I, I, I want to make sure that we do that. Then I want to talk about some of the policy issues uh, that you worked on and dealt with in the Obama administration, and then get some views, your views on uh, current issues, crises, individuals. Uh, and uh, that'll definitely take us uh, a full hour. Uh, but before I do sort of go into any one of those buckets, I wanted to just ask you about uh, the act of writing a memoir, uh, which as Karen indicated, I, I have uh, experienced that myself, but I was a, a full-time writer long before I became a government official. Um, I still found it immensely challenging. There is a, a, a saying, John, I don't know if you've heard it, in the, in the mother country that uh, Irish people have trouble using the first person even in therapy. Uh, just so you know. Uh, so I wonder if, if before we get into the substance of what you've given us and shared and your views on the world, if you could just tell us uh, how, how you crossed that, that hurdle and sort of for a, a man who spent 33 years in a profession that was about keeping oneself guarded and keeping secrets, uh, laying it all out there, what was that like for you and how did you go about doing it? Well, Samantha, first of all, I want to thank you, as well as Karen Greenberg and the Center of National Security for the opportunity to have this conversation today. Um, I was really privileged and honored throughout my 33 plus years of government service to participate in some wonderful, wonderful experiences, challenges and opportunities uh, to U.S. national security and to the intelligence mission. And I didn't think I was ever going to write a memoir, but then when I retired, I wanted to do a couple of things. One is that I wanted to give the American people what I think is, is their right to know more about that important world of national security and the intelligence community, and to understand better what their fellow Americans, women and men are doing day in and day out around the globe to try to keep this great country safe. And there's been so many mischaracterizations and misrepresentations of what they've been involved in that since I had inside insight into it, I wanted to share it. And then by doing so, what I really want to do is encourage more Americans to consider a career in national security. Again, I was very privileged to have the opportunities that I did. And I really do believe that with the nature and extent of the challenges that our country faces and the, and the world faces in the coming years, that the uh, America needs the best and brightest among our, our people to join in that effort to try to make our country and our world a better place to live. And so that's why I spend time at Fordham and my other alma mater, University of Texas at Austin, trying to encourage students to consider whether it be a national security or intelligence career or the diplomatic corps or the military or at state and local levels or whatever to give back to this great country of, of ours, because I, I really do believe that, again, the, the nature and the intensity of some of these challenges really requires uh, the best and brightest among uh, America's youth to pursue a career in public service. So and just a, a teeny bit more on method, uh, now that you're a fancy New York Times bestselling uh, author. Uh, what did you read other memoirs? How did you sort of liberate the more personal reflections in the book, uh, again, given uh, that that isn't something you've done before. Yeah, I, I did. I, I've always, uh, the time that I had to read uh, during my government career, uh, at night I usually would read a couple pages before I would fall asleep out of exhaustion. I, I always enjoyed reading biographies, autobiographies, memoirs, um, and one's individuals of, of historical significance and also recent memoirs, including by you and Susan Rice and, and others, as well as Barack Obama. Um, and I quite, and I think I said this to you once in an email that I was quite intimidated because individuals such as yourself who are you know, so adept at uh, writing and you know, there, there is a, a literary genius, I think that, that I see in other people, it was rather intimidating for me to 
put pen to paper or to put you know fingers to, to keystrokes. I wrote a lot in the government. I enjoyed writing and doing analytic work, but it's a different type of writing. Uh, so when I finally sat down to do it, I wanted to tell some personal stories. Uh, and so I tried to intersperse you know, a, my recollections of some heavy national security issues with those personal recollections of things, anecdotes that I think were, you know, was in many respects seminal in terms of my, my growth and development. Well, it's a great human tale. And, you know, just since it's been in the press lately with the, the otherwise, I think, uh, very, very glowing reviews of the book and how it's written and how the story's told, what's been in those reviews as well has been how you were denied access uh, to your records. I mean, how, how frustrating was that when you got the, the note back that basically informed you you'd be the first CIA director in history uh, not to be able to access uh, your files, uh, even, even though, you know, whatever views they may have of you, you would have had to have gone anyway through a declassification review as all government officials, former government officials do. But what was your, re what was your reaction to that? Did you just say, I got to get on with it? Or did you think about litigating it and, and getting diverted from the writing task? How did, you, how did you respond to that? Well, I found it appalling, but not surprising that uh, Donald Trump would take action to try to prevent my being able to access my files. Because as I relate in the book, although um, the, the announcement of, by the White House that my security clearances were being revoked never happened because there was no legal basis to revoke those clearances, Donald Trump did send a directive to the intelligence community forbidding anybody from sharing classified information with me, which basically precluded my ability to access my records at CIA. But I was not going, I could have pursued, I guess, you know, some type of uh, litigation or appeal process, but I thought that would just drag out and Donald Trump is notorious for, you know, continuing those, those legal battles as a way to, to delay final decisions. So I decided to move forward and, try to recollect as much as I could and talk to my former colleagues. And, and it was given that I worked in the government for 33 years, there was a lot of material that I you know, had to choose from. In many respects, I felt as though I was in a plane at 30,000 feet, you know, going over my career and trying to figure out when I would come down to 10,000 feet or 5,000 feet or when I would try to go at street level. And that was the, the tough thing. And so there were a lot of aspects of my career and issues and stories that, you know, I, I could have written about. Maybe I will in the future. But at some point, I, I wanted to just get this done because I thought it was important to, to get it out um, when I did and to, uh, again, share those stories with the American people. So we're going to get to some of the policy issues you grappled with uh, as CIA director um, in a, in a few minutes, but I, I want to stay sort of in the early part of the book and and well the early part of your life really, and uh, just note for for the audience that um, I was President Obama's human rights advisor in the first four years, and people in the human rights community would ask me, you know, who are your big allies, and it would absolutely shock people <laughs> to hear uh, that John Brennan uh, was a major ally uh, on issues related to pushing human rights for human rights policies uh, as a governance matter, particularly in the Middle East. Uh, I think John was always very alert to uh, the risk of revolution if you don't see political reform and evolution. I think that was uh, a way that you, I heard you put it a couple of times, John. But the other issue we worked on together was that of refugee policy and, and particularly looking out for Iraqi and Afghan citizens who had worked for our forces, who had been translators, interpreters, and who'd really been left behind by policies that were very uh, sort of, uh, well, let's just say stingy uh, uh, in terms of allowing, you know, uh, again, a, a flow of refugees, vetted refugees into the United States. So what people should know on this, on this call, even though it's not uh, all that well known about John Brennan, but was that he was the person who really uh, drove the process, he and Dennis McDonough, uh, to ensure that after, uh, again, not allowing very many Iraqi refugees in particular into this country, uh, John was the person who helped make sure that we had the appropriate vetting, but that also we could get more refugees in here, who, uh, both who had dedicated themselves to serving with our people uh, in war zones, uh, but also just because we know it's such an important part of the American fabric and because refugees and immigrants offer so much. So that's flashing forward to the, the time we'll get to, but 
you write so movingly about your your grandfather and your father uh, riding his bicycle, uh, you know, to make his way to the to the ferry to make his way, uh, or the, the, the biggest ship, I guess it was. I forget the name of it. Um, uh, to make his way across the Atlantic to get to America and to join, uh, you know, his siblings. How much do you think being from being the son of an Irish immigrant shapes your worldview, your sense of what America is, and how much would it do you think shape uh, the approach that you took to the kinds of issues we worked on together? Well, I think it was the fact that I was a son of an immigrant, but also had the upbringing I had from both my both my parents that really shapes my my perspective and then ultimately my worldview. Uh, my father, who came to the United States at the age of 28 in 1948 from Ireland, always impressed upon my brother, sister, and me just how special it was to be an American citizen. He said he strove his entire life in order to come to the land of freedom and opportunity and that we should never take it for granted that we are American citizens by dint of our birth. And I think I quote him in the book by saying that it is frequently those who are born here that don't realize just how special a privilege it is to be an American. And it really impressed upon me that, you know, I, I did have this special quality to me that I was an American. And then when I got a chance to, to travel uh, at an early age overseas uh, to Indonesia and to Egypt, it really helped me put being an American into a, a global context. Uh, but my parents were very, very instrumental in making sure that I had a North Star where honesty, decency, uh, dignity, um, really were, and understanding the difference between right and wrong guided me. Uh, so, you know, I, I have tried to live up to uh, the, the teachings of, of my parents, as well as their, their, the, the model that they set for me. But it really was quite important for me to realize that I was an American. And I think at an early age, I really tried to understand what that meant. And I was an avid reader of history and also trying to have a better sense of the world and all of its diversity and, and wonders. Uh, so it did shape my perspective, uh, which I think has stayed with me, you know, over the last 65 years. I definitely, I, I was very struck because you and I didn't know each other before those early years in the Obama administration. And just, uh, again, just bringing that empathy and that ability to kind of disaggregate the statistics of how many people are being kept out or let in. And, and it, it just seemed as if you had this ability to imagine the individuals at the heart of the statistics, which isn't uh, always the case, you know, of course, for, for people who've worked in large institutions for their whole lives. But, uh, but it was very, very powerful to, to witness in, in meetings where people would be saying, is that the CIA director? <laughs> Uh, you know, making okay, my exposure early on to, for example, in Indonesia, when I would go into the, the villages and just to see the destitution and the malnourishment and how their lives were so different than mine growing up in, in New Jersey. And even though I had a counterterrorism portfolio, what I always tried to do was to have my prism not be one that looked exclusively at the counterterrorism pros and cons of any type of policy course take into account the much broader I guess, ecosystem that I had to operate within. And so it's one of the reasons why I so enjoyed working for President Obama and Vice President Biden, because they also had this, this very broad appreciation of the diversity of the world and America's interests that run the gamut from, from terrorism to uh, addressing issues of uh, you know, refugees or as we, we work together on the issue of trying to get um, assistance to Somalis uh, and trying to try to get past, you know, the Al-Shabaab, you know, uh, toll takers, tax takers there and, and figuring out how you're going to optimize the goals and outcomes that you want. And it can, it, frequently it's not, it shouldn't be either or. There's a way to try to, again, optimize what you're seeking um, and, and not excluding some of these very, very important human dimensions and human needs that I think the United States in particular should take into account. Well, that's, again, it's one thing, folks, to hear this now in, uh, you know, a virtual meeting like this, but, but imagine the CIA director making that, that argument, you know, when you're debating how to weight the counterterrorism equities in the Somalia context with the need to provide food relief 
to people who are at risk of famine and when some of that food may fall into the hands of Al-Shabaab. So uh, again, that, that perspective being voiced in those contexts was so uh, important. So you grew up very Catholic, uh, which I also relate to, um, and you uh, had a dream, in fact, you note in the book, which has not made headlines, but that you wanted to be the first American Pope. Uh, but those dreams were dashed. Um, you go to Fordham, which is one reason we're especially delighted uh, to be joining Karen here today uh, at this Fordham institution. Um, and, uh, you know, a bunch of things happen, but ultimately you decide, you see an advertisement in the newspaper and you decide you're going to uh, uh, apply to the CIA. And I guess what I'd love you to do, one of the, one of the very amusing scenes in the book is when you sit down to have your polygraph uh, to determine whether or not you're, you're cut from the requisite cloth uh, to join the CIA. And I wonder if you could just describe uh, that polygraph experience. <laughs> well, yes, I was applying for a job at the CIA. And so I was at the University of Texas at the time. So they flew me up to the Washington DC area and I went in for a battery of tests, including psychological tests and medical tests and polygraphs, which all CIA officers have to go through at the beginning of their career, as well as throughout their career. And the polygraph was going along well, but he asked me a couple of questions that uh, I, was, I was concerned about. First, he asked me if I had ever lied to anybody recently, because you know, they want to make sure that you have integrity, you know, and that you can be trustworthy if you come into CIA. And so I said, well, in fact, I just I spoke to my mother over the weekend and, you know, she's very Catholic and, you know, wants me to make sure that I, I honor my faith. And so I, I said that she asked me if I went to church on Sunday and I said yes, although I hadn't uh, because I didn't want to get her upset. And he, the polygrapher looked at me very seriously and said, you lie to your mother about going to church. And so that took me aback and I was worried about how he was going to react to some of the future questions. And, and the next question was, you know, have you ever worked for or supported any type of group, subversive organization dedicated to the, you know, the overthrow of the American government? And I was ready to answer no when all of a sudden my, my Catholic guilt uh, uh, raised in my memory uh, the fact that in 1976, the first time I was able to vote in a presidential election, I was already turned off by partisan politics. And as I went into the voting booth and I was looking at the candidates, I stumbled across the name Gus Hall that seemed to be familiar to me. And I didn't really know anything about him, but he was a communist. And so I flipped the lever uh, as a protest vote against partisan politics. And so when I thought about that, I knew that if I were to say no to the polygrapher, uh, with that on my mind, that the machine would have gone bonkers. And so I decided to reveal that, that vote in a, in a very sort of anxious manner. And I didn't know how he was going to react to it. Uh, he then said, after I acknowledged my vote for Gus Hall, he said, is there anything else that you've done in support of the Communist Party? I said, no, it was just that one off. And I was very fearful. And I think he saw the look of fear on my face. And he looked at me and said, it is your right as an American citizen to vote for whomever you want. And that will not be held against you in any way in your application. And I must say that I just felt this great surge of elation. And I might have had tears in my eyes at the time because I had some qualms about joining the CIA because of a lot of the stories that I had heard about what the CIA was involved in. But the fact that that polygrapher re reaffirmed my right as an American citizen to vote as I wanted to, even as a 21-year-old protest vote, it really just reinforced my, my determination to be hired by CIA. And, and so it, it was a very good experience. It was a, a frightening one, uh, but it was, a, it was a good experience. So I love the story. I mean, both of the polygraph and anybody can put yourself, uh, put themselves in your shoes uh, just to, to the terror of, you know, do I tell the truth on this? Do I not? And throw in the Catholic guilt and that compounds your, your uh, dilemma. Um, but I also, when I combine this, I think the, the, the biggest sort of national security, no, not really national security, the biggest human security secret in the book uh, that is disclosed that, that, everyone should, should just know that they're getting cl highly classified information is that you got your ear pierced in Greenwich <laughs> Village uh, as a young man. So I wanna, I think your audience would wanna know, okay, how's this guy who votes for Gus Hall in this election, surprises his then girlfriend uh, with an earring that he dons in, in Greenwich Village 
you know, the CIA wasn't without a reputation at that time. So was it, I mean, you, you sort of uh, presented in the book as, you know, I tried this and then I tried this and I kind of landed at the CIA and then, and then off to the races. Right. Uh, but I wonder, I mean, the, the sort of the, the, the reputational freight that the CIA was carrying, you know, after Cold War coups and covert operations. And I mean, the timelines are again, intersect to some extent with, with, with your time there, but, but, you know, when, when you came up when I was UN ambassador and we, I hosted a dinner for you and so many of the ambassadors from other countries just couldn't believe they were gonna get to sit down with the, with the CIA director, with Obama CIA director. And afterwards their reactions, you know, were just kind of like, that was nothing like what I expected, you know? And, and you sort of probe a little bit and they, they'd say, you know, I just can't square the John Brennan that I just heard from with what the CIA, you know, did in my country, uh, you know, in 1954 in Guatemala or in, you know, 1973 in Chile or wherever. And a lot of these ambassadors carrying with them perceptions of the CIA to this day. So I'm just curious, what was your perception of the CIA as an earring wearing communist voting, even if by accident kind of communist voting person? And, and or was it only later that you came to, to realize, you know, the, the communications challenge at the very least, if not the many substantive challenges uh, of generating the kinds of reforms within the agency that, that you yourself would be a part of. But, but what was that like for you at that age? Well, I was aware when I joined the agency in 1980, the agency had a, a checkered history and a past and was involved in some very controversial activities, including the overthrow of some governments uh, abroad. Um, and so I was, I was conflicted, but yet one of the reasons why I really wanted to, you know, uh, be hired by the CIA, uh, I was pursuing uh, an application with the State Department at the same time, I wanted to see the world. Again, my appetite was whetted by my time in Indonesia and in Egypt, and I had an intellectual curiosity to try to understand as, as best I could, um, you know, what the what the world is all about and my, my role in it. And uh, the CIA provided that opportunity. So I was, I was determined to get in the door of CIA and I got in the door through the operations door pretty early on in my career within the first year or so, I decided I was better suited for the analytics side of the house. And, but I always had a sense that the CIA plays a very important role as far as our national security is concerned. But sometimes it has been involved in things that I think are not consistent at least with what my image of the ethics of intelligence really require. Um, and so throughout the course of my CIA history and, and tenure, there were times when CIA was involved in things that I did not you know, agree with or support. And I talk about those, those times that I felt as though maybe I fell short because I didn't speak out enough. But when I joined, I really saw the agency as uh, essential to our national security. We were still in a cold war. With, with Russia, uh, Soviet Union at the time. It was a bipolar world and the United States was this leading light of trying to be the, the, the leader of the free world and advocate of the, the liberal democratic order around the world. And so there were a lot of great things about, you know, the America, again, thinking about my father's words that I wanted to be a part of, but there were some dark sides of the CIA that I knew that I was going to have to encounter. And, and I did uh, during my career. So flashing forward, and we have a lot of questions that have come in about contemporary issues. So I want to I want to get to the present here relatively quickly. But um, looking back at the o Obama years when you uh, did serve first as his Homeland Security uh, advisor, um, being in that position, having to deliver uh, horrible news to the president about you know shootings in schools and terrorist attacks and so forth, um, and, and you know, spearheading the bureaucratic consolidation around his counterterrorism uh, strategy, and then becoming director of the CIA. What in that period um, if you, would you do differently if you had to do it over again in, in, the, in the eight year period, whether at CIA or before? Well, one of the reasons why I decided to rejoin the government when President Obama was elected, because I was in the private sector, I had retired back in 2005, but in my conversations with uh, President-elect Obama, I felt that there was a very strong alignment between his views and my views about 
the importance of national security, but at the same time, the American obligations that we have to the American people as well as to the global community. And that's one of the reasons why I agreed to take that role in the White House, where I was one making recommendations and providing advice and counsel to President Obama about when we would have to take some offensive actions against terrorists, uh, what we would have to do in order to respond to some of these domestic threats and challenges. Uh, and so I, I really felt as though uh, it was something that I, I could pursue and still maintain that, that moral compass. Now, looking back over those eight years, uh, I do um, think that you know, I had to make some decisions and some recommendations that with all the best of intentions, at least I you know, uh, believe, that there were some mistakes. There were some tragic, tragic accidents uh, in terms of you know, uh, counterterrorism strikes that resulted in, in deaths of, of innocents. Uh, and those are the ones that I, I most regret because I played a role there. And I knew that when I was joining his administration, I would be in a role much different than just as an intelligence advisor. I was actually gonna be part of a policy making group that would have to make those really tough decisions about when to act and when to wait. And there were times I had to look myself in the mirror and recognize that I had those solemn responsibilities and I had to carry them out to the best of my ability. Uh, and so I guess the, the regrets I have are, are those decisions and actions that I played a role in that um, had some very unforeseen and, and tragic uh, outcomes that involved the, the loss of innocent life. One of the things about the Obama administration uh, that we released uh, the information statistics about the counterterrorism strikes that we took and how many combatants were were killed, how many innocents were killed. Um, and despite a lot of the reporting from various groups about the the hundreds, if not thousands, of innocents that were killed, the thing about working with President Obama and Vice President Biden, they wanted to make sure that we did everything possible to minimize to the greatest extent possible any loss of innocent life. And I feel proud of that. Um, but again, looking back on it, there were some decisions and actions that I really wish that we could have had a, uh, a chance to, to do over. And, and it is, uh, you know, there, there, there is a risk, of course, when, you know, any single entity, the US government, you know, treating it as a whole, but is judge, jury and executioner. And I think that's, it was the biggest challenge that you and President Obama sort of, well, we all wrestled with, but you all, uh, you know, especially trying to figure out how to develop a framework where there'd be some form of accountability against that backdrop. And it's just crushing to see uh, how it's not just in the intelligence space and in the civilian casualty space, those numbers are now being shrouded and not released to the public, but even US troop numbers now, <laughs> Pentagon deployment numbers uh, are uh, now not being uh, released to the public in the way that they once were. I think maybe having something to do uh, perhaps with Trump's desire to be able to claim that he's reduced Trump numbers in theaters where maybe they've gone up like the, the Gulf area or whatever, but, um, but talk about, Again, minimizing the the accountability that we need to to make sure that these decisions are sound and and uh, you know tested uh, in as many quarters as we can, given the monopoly on violence uh, that that governments have in in this context. Um, I want to uh, we're going to get now to a bunch of questions about the present. Our, our bridge there, though, if you don't mind, John, is the I'd, I'd like it to be your your I guess it's your only in person encounter with. Uh, President Trump. And if you could just sort of describe that briefing that you gave him on the Russia investigation, um, sort of what you feel like you, you learned in retrospect now that you've seen four years of him almost, uh, what did you see in that briefing that has been borne out in what you've seen of, of his leadership? Well, Samantha, when, I knew that when we were arriving at Trump Tower in early January of 2017 to brief him on the intelligence community assessment on Russian interference in the presidential election, that Donald Trump was already very resistant to hearing the, the message and was already 
claiming that uh, the Russians uh, were not interfering uh, on his behalf. And also, I had a pretty good appreciation of Donald Trump, having grown up in the New York, New Jersey area, uh, that he had uh, a well-deserved reputation for you know, skirting uh, propriety in, in many areas in terms of his business dealings and litigation. And, and he was you know, obviously very interested in trying to enhance his, his brand. And I was, I was surprised that he was able to be elected. Um, but that's, that's a whole nother conversation about, you know, how the Republican primary system really didn't weed out, I think, those who were um, ill-suited uh, for the job. And, and I, I thought that he, he wasn't uh, experienced either um, from a national security or foreign policy or domestic policy standpoint. He didn't have the temperament. He didn't have the, the perspective or the, or the approach needed for President of the United States, having served for six myself. And so when, you know, at that briefing, uh, I think he acted as I expected, which was he uh, was not uh, accepting of the assessment. He uh, several times would say, well, it could have been China, it could have been China, and did not um, show any of that intellectual curiosity that previous presidents and senior officials have demonstrated when they're told about, you know, Russian activities, especially interference in election. He wasn't trying to find out exactly what happened. I think he was looking for flaws in the analysis or trying to find out exactly how we knew certain things that we knew. And unfortunately, um, although I had hoped that he was going to grow into the job and mature and leave a lot of his own personal traits uh, behind him when he became president, I think we have seen over the you know nearly four years now that he only has uh, become much more uh, Donald Trump than ever before in terms of continuing to be uh, dishonest, uh, deceitful, uh, misrepresent the facts, uh, continue to pursue policies and agendas that advance his own personal interests, political interests, financial in interests. Uh, this has been Donald Trump's reputation, well-deserved one, for, you know, throughout his lifetime. And I feel very, you know, um, it's, it's very unfortunate the United States has somebody right now at the helm who continues to pursue a very personal agenda, I think at the expense of US national security and domestic security interests. So we have a question from Billy Pickett about election integrity. And so maybe this is a good time to ask it. Um, you know, if not for what you've just described, this sort of privileging of Trump's own personal uh, interests, whatever those are with Putin, or even just his personal legitimacy, clearly he feels that, uh, as well that acknowledging the findings of the Republican-led Senate uh, Intelligence Committee uh, report, the Mueller findings, your findings, uh, that that would be delegitimating. Um, but for whatever the reason is, of course, our federal government has not taken the steps uh, that uh, they should have, it should have, uh, to try to ensure uh, that what happened in 2016 not happen again. Have there been you know, uh, cries from the heart by the current FBI director as recently as just in the last, you know, couple of weeks. Um, you see state uh, election officials uh, acknowledging their vulnerabilities. I mean, how, the question from Billy is just number one, how worried are you about questions of election integrity? And, you know, not just misinformation, which is, you know, kind of how we might fight the last war, but other questions of getting into software, uh, you know, the, the, we, the in some places, the weakness of cyber defenses and so forth. I mean, how, how worried are you that the elections we see, whether it's November 3rd or in subsequent days are not reflective of the will of, of people who cast their ballots? Uh, so again, putting misinformation to one side on election integrity, and then, Billy also asked the question that I know so many of our viewers have about uh, your uh, assessment of whether in the event Trump loses, there will be a peaceful uh, transfer of power. Well, I think um, thinking about election integrity, I think Donald Trump has done a lot to try to undermine it, um, both in terms of what he is saying about you know, fraudulent ballots and uh, really trying to, I think, uh, worry Americans that the election is going to be fair. Also, I think there are a number of efforts uh, within states, uh, again, encouraged by Donald Trump to try to suppress votes that they don't want to see uh, at the voting booths. Um, 
But when I think about the foreign interference, like Russians, uh, you really have to look at it in two dimensions. One is the technical front, and the other one is the influence information operations. On the technical front, I do think that our um, officials uh, at the FBI and at uh, Department of Homeland Security and CIA and NSA have really tried to do a better job of making those types of intrusions uh, less uh, possible um, uh, by trying to strengthen some of those systems, providing assistance to the states because the states are the ones that own the electoral system. But we knew that in 2016, the Russians were navigating into some of those state systems. Uh, we were concerned that the Russians were going to take down voter registration rolls, create havoc and chaos at the voting booths on election day. But I do think some work has been done. I'm not saying that you know more you know, can't be done. Absolutely, more can be done. But I, I don't think the, the Russians and others are really going to look at that area of technical intrusions as how they're going to make a difference. The influence operations, unfortunately, I think made a real difference in 2016. Uh, the Russians are very, very sophisticated cyber actors and uh, pushing out things in the social media environment, uh, misrepresenting themselves as, as Americans and American people and entities. Uh, they, the Russians see real opportunity in trying to shape the views, the attitudes, the perspectives and the votes of American citizens. They do that in other countries as well. They're, they're quite... Um, um, aggressive in Europe and other areas in the same way. And those influence, influence operations really pay dividends. And looking back in 2016, particularly since Paul Manafort provided some polling data in some very crucial precincts in, in some of the swing states, I do believe that the Russian influence operations did change votes. And given that there were, what, 87,000 or so votes in three states that really tipped the electoral balance, I do think that you know votes were changed. How many, I don't know. And so I, I have confidence that Chris Ray, who is really, I think, trying to stand firm against uh, Donald Trump and William Barr, as well as the folks at NSA and some of those officials at DHS and other areas are doing their level best to do what they can to prevent that interference. But I, I, I think that, uh, you know, Americans should, you know, move forward with, you know, their votes and trying to put trust in the system. But uh, unfortunately, I think, again, Donald Trump and people of his ilk um, are doing their their utmost because they see that in some respects, the writing is on the wall. But I would just encourage everybody to vote um, and whether it's mail in, whether it's uh, early voting at polling booths or on Election Day. And just to follow up on that, so you don't think that Russian capabilities uh are are likely i mean you're, you the 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 cuz you you said votes were changed but what you meant was people changed their minds on the basis of targeted right yes. right right but the not, tallies were changed votes were changed as in you know sort of actually stripping the numbers of right the, the, yeah. the tallies themselves i don't think they, the russians did anything to affect those tallies i think they affected the votes before people got to vote I think the Russians and Vladimir Putin very much want Donald Trump reelected, and they're going to do their best to try to ensure that those influence operations that I learned a lot about as a result of the Mueller report that really exposed the extent of that, because since CIA is focused on the foreign intelligence field, we weren't looking domestically. We would share things with the FBI, but it was FBI and Homeland Security that really had that responsibility to understand what is happening in these US-based social media platforms and what the Russians were doing domestically here. Now, the, I'm not gonna let you get away without talking because it's a question fundamentally about, you know, the strength of our institutions, I suppose, but about the peaceful transfer of power and your assessment of whether if Trump loses, uh, Republicans, I guess, and our other institutions will, will step up and ensure his exit. Well, I, I am worried about what's going to happen between now and Election Day, and I'm very worried about what happen, might happen between Election Day and Inauguration Day. Um, if, if the vote is a resounding defeat for Donald Trump, he still probably will try to pursue some type of legal challenges in the court. But I think the writing will be on the wall. And I like to think that the Republicans are going to find their spine and intestinal fortitude, as well as moral compass, maybe, finally, to uh, not allow Trump to continue to try to hold on to the office of the presidency. Uh, Trump will do everything possible uh, during this period of time to protect himself. Uh, he, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he tries to pardon himself, even though you know it's questionable whether he can, although it's not explicitly precluded in the Constitution that a president can't pardon himself. 
he may step down and you know, allow Michael Pence to pardon him, um, but that doesn't give him the type of immunity from the, the state charges in you know, Manhattan DA. But I, I, I do worry that Trump is not going to be in any way gracious. I don't find that he ever has been when it's against his personal interest to, to do so. Um, I talk in the book about just how grateful we all were in the Obama administration that the Bush administration did everything possible to facilitate that transfer of power from a Republican administration to a Democratic administration. But I, I really do worry that Donald Trump is going to do things that not just to facilitate that transition, that is going to make it even more difficult for a Biden administration to address our domestic and international challenges because the powers of a president are enormous. And if they misuse them, they really can cause havoc. So um, there's a question from Andy Silver, and it relates more, I think, to our prior exchange, uh, but uh, sort of a question about what can be going on behind the scenes. Is it possible that the rendition and torture practices of the CIA under the Bush administration are still occurring or have been resurrected? Uh, do, do you feel you left an institution I suppose the question is, you know, um, with with enough checks and balances where uh, that kind of thing could be averted in the future. And, and, you know, we had big debates even between us about what measure of accountability needed to be undertaken in order to best guard against it recurring in the future. But how, how do you think about that question? Yeah, when I was director, I vowed that that program would never be reconstituted as long as I was director. I do not believe that the rendition, detention, interrogation program uh, that was implemented during the Bush administration has been reauthorized uh, or implemented by CIA. It would have to have been, it should have been um, um, notified to the Congress, the oversight committees. Uh, but I, I just don't believe that the CIA would be involved in that again. What else might be underway from a covert action perspective? given that there's such a shroud of secrecy that this administration has put over intelligence activities? I don't know. One of the things that the, the Biden team is going to have to do, the transition team, is try to uncover all of those activities that are underway, either by the intelligence services or by the US military that have not seen the light of day and that will be incompatible with uh, Biden presidency. That's such a great point. Um, so Holly and Zaim uh, each have questions about sort of strategic threats and, and how you kind of rank uh, the, the most profound threats uh, to American security. I, I, I'd love you to answer that. And, and you know, Zaim sort of adds the, the, the very specific question about, do you consider the Chinese Communist Party a threat similar to that of the Soviet Union? So definitely just if you could address China, nuclear weapons, you know, terrorism, climate change, pandemics, polarization, domestic polarization. How do you, how do you even think about a priority list, knowing that any incoming president, you know, he who fights every battle, proverbial battle, fights none. You know, how do you even think about prioritization in this context? Yeah, it's tough because the United States, more than any other country, has global responsibilities um, if it so chooses to uh, fulfill them. And one of the challenges is that there's so much that is happening at one time for the United States. There's the near term, there's the medium term, and there's the longer term. You know, the near term, I think, is getting through the next 100 days, trying to get past Inauguration Day. And I do think that there are going to be a serious, um, serious challenges uh, that we're going to be facing here as a result of the election, the aftermath, and how that's going to manifest itself. I think the Biden administration is going to, looking at the sort of the medium term, is has a lot of those issues that you mentioned. What are we going to do about the North Korean um, nuclear weapons and ballistic missile program? And not just have, you know, photo snaps on the DMZ, which is what Donald Trump has, has basically done and, and has allowed the North Korean program to continue to develop and mature. Um, what are, is going to happen as far as China is concerned? I'm confident that Joe Biden recognizes that the US-China relationship really needs to be addressed in a very you know, comprehensive manner. We need to get the trade relationship best, you know, in, a, in a better position. We need to though uh, find areas where we can work with China. I am very concerned, not just about Hong Kong, but also Taiwan. There is you know, increasing tension you know, between Taiwan and, and China. Uh, and how are we going to ensure that we fulfill our obligations to the Taiwanese, but at the same time, not get into a, a major military confrontation with China. 
so these medium-term issues, uh, Iran trying to repair the damage that has been done by getting out of the Iranian nuclear pro, uh, agreement, the JCPOA, uh, trying to repair the relationships with our allies and partners, as Donald Trump's mantra of America first, America first, has allowed a lot of those very important relationships to atrophy. And those relationships strengthen us and help us. And so Joe Biden is going to have to make sure that adversaries understand, and in adversaries, I'm including authoritarian leaders, you know, the Erdogans, the Mohammed bin Salmans and others of the world, that there's a new day in Washington and the United States is not gonna be silent on a lot of these human rights atrocities and the continued suppression of individual rights around the world. Uh, and, and also though, make sure that uh, our NATO partners and other partners realize that the United States is going to reclaim its position on that global stage in terms of leadership. But then over the longer term, and we cannot wait to deal with the longer term issues, you have to deal with the longer term issues now, as well as these other ones, the digital domain. How we, what are we going to do to ensure that that environment, which is the engine of our economic growth and prosperity, but also our security and our safety, how are we going to ensure that it's going to continue to be robust and capable, and it's going to optimize privacy and civil liberties and are taking advantage of its reliability, speed and continued growth, but at the same time, try to ensure that malactors domestically or internationally are not going to exploit it. We still have not reached the national consensus on what the role of the government should be in that environment, which is owned and operated 85% by the private sector. So what is that balance that needs to be struck? What do we need to do either legislatively or just you know, nationally to better secure that environment. And then the one that really worries me as I look out for my children and grandchildren, the impact of climate change, and including in the national security front, as the seas rise and as coastal communities are forced inland into urban centers or across borders, the flow of peoples, the impact on economies, on agriculture, on, uh, on politics, on, on social tensions, that's going to rise. And we've seen just this acceleration in climate change over the past several years. And if we do not take concerted, and I'm talking about global action on this, we're not gonna be able to even slow the growth, much less try to stop it or reverse it. And so as Washington continues to focus on these partisan battles over insignificant things, we are allowing these problems to fester and get worse. And the longer they go on, the more difficult it is going to be to address them. That's, that's great, John. Um, okay, we're, we're running out of time here and Karen's gonna be joining us shortly to wrap us up. So I'm gonna ask you two yes, no questions. And then I'm gonna ask you a question uh, that comes from our, our audience uh, on public service. So. My, the first question uh, comes from Kim Locke, who says, thank you for this interview, Mr. Brennan. Have you had anyone contact you to option Undaunted, the book, uh, for TV or film? Yes, no. No. <laughs> no. So, I'm thankful that someone decided to publish it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this one is from me, this yes, no question. Have you ever run one of your tweets by another human being before you posted it? Before you hit the blue button? Well, well Samantha, you know Kathy, my wife, well, and Kathy is my, my conscience. And so uh, frequently, most always, I will you know, ask her, what did she think about it? You should see some of the tweets that you know, were turned down. It could, it could take up a book itself including some, you know, that are rather melodic and <laughs> trying to live up to my sort of, you know, Irish literary sort of yeah. heritage roots or whatever. But yes, uh, Kathy is the one who usually gets to see them. Sometimes they take advantage if she's not available to push something out that maybe she wouldn't have agreed to. And sometimes, and I do have, you know, some other folks that will, will look at it and give me counsel because oh. I, I tend to be a bit uh, outspoken. Um, and, you know, what is ironic is that during the Obama administration, it, it was the, the Democrats in Congress that were calling for my firing or resignation, um, because I think some of the, the reputation that I, I had and people felt as though I was defending some, you know, atrocities or whatever. Um, 
and so it was the the Democrats that were crucifying me. Now people think that you know I'm this hyperpartisan person, even though I'm not a Democrat or Republican, who you know is is criticizing Donald Trump and the Republicans. I do say in the book I'm an equal opportunity offender, and I think in some of my tweets uh, it's it's clear that uh, sometimes I am not just undaunted, but maybe um, um, <laughs> untempered or ill-tempered. I don't know which one it is, but <laughs> I. I, I do run them by uh, Kathy and, and uh, some other folks. Uh, That's amazing. Well, we, we do hope that yeah, the sequel to Undaunted will be the, the unpublished tweets. So we know what, what's on the cutting room floor. Last question uh, before uh, Karen wraps us up here is from Lawrence Coffey. I think it's important um, just because we don't know what the outcome of the election is. And it's why everybody here, of course, should vote and get others to vote and vote carefully and vote early. Uh, but Lawrence asked, how would you provide advice to someone interested in public service, but concerned about advancing policy objectives with which you personally disagree? And the example he offers is public service under Trump, which, you know, if you had another four years, You've made, you made the call in the book and you even wrote the book in the spirit of inspiring people to go into public service. Uh, how would you talk to people if Trump gets another four years? But even if he doesn't, uh, in circumstances, the circumstances always arise, uh, you know, where you're not fully in lockstep with your boss. But how, how do you think about uh, the duty to country, duty to institution and, and disagreement in the context of public life? <clears throat> Well, one of the reasons why I was attracted to join the intelligence community was because it is designed to be independent, objective, nonpartisan, that irrespective of the political party that may be in power, that intelligence professionals really need to carry out their responsibilities to the best of their ability and not with policy or partisan objectives or concerns in mind. I can see how it must have been very, very difficult over the last four years for people in the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, or in Health and Human Services, or Housing and Urban Development, to be implementing policies that they had disagreed with, particularly after eight years of the Obama administration, and even before that, because I do think that the George W. Bush um, administration was really trying to do things to, to help people, including abroad, like in Africa and other, other areas. So it's those people who are in those policy organizations that really, I think, are, are challenged to carry out their responsibilities. Um, and when they have the, the political winds changing so abruptly and also changing in a manner that those professionals believe are inconsistent with our values as a nation and what America stands for, that, that is tough. But I, every month at CIA, I would administer the oath of office to a new group of CIA officers who were coming into the organization. And I would tell them that, you know, being, working in the Washington DC area and in national security, that you're going to be, you know, frequently the target of the, the wrath of those from one side or the other. You have to ignore that. You need to really carry out your responsibilities as best you can, because the American people depend on it, which is why I continue to encourage young Americans to ignore the craziness of Washington that you know, going into law enforcement and intelligence in particular, you should not be in any way influenced by those partisan winds. Uh, again, this is a great country, an exceptional country. Uh, I, I try to remember every day that my father impressed upon me that it really is special to be an American citizen and we should never take it for granted, nor should we ever abuse all the rights, freedoms and liberties that we, we have enjoyed. Uh, Perfect way to end, John. Thank you so much. Samantha, thank you. And it's really a great, great uh, privilege again to, to work with you. Uh, you were a, a leading voice uh, during the Obama administration for so many of those initiatives that really had the, the welfare of, of not just America, but all those around the world, those particularly who are um, underprivileged or um, disenfranchised or do not have the, the advocates that, that they need. And so, uh, again, it was just Wonderful working with you and with others. And I, I thank once again, Karen and, and Fordham for having the opportunity to, to reconnect virtually. And I do hope that we're able to do it in person in the not too distant future. Be great. Well, um, I just, now we have another reason for, um, that it's so good that you wrote this book, which is that we got to hear this conversation, which was actually remarkable. And I, I'm gonna play it over and over. There was so much that you packed into this hour. 
Um, thank you so much, Samantha, for giving us a history of John's life. <laughs> well, that was very well done. I'm glad that you uh, came at the end to the notion of public servants. The center is going to spend a long, a lot of time in the next few months, before, during, and after the election, talking to former public servants about uh, cues and advice and guidance for going forward. Um, and so I encourage everybody to pay attention to what's coming up on our events. Listen to Vital Interest Podcast. Um, this week we have Richard Clark. Um, our next episode has Russ Feingold. I think there's a lot of people out there who have an awful lot to offer. And I think the two of you have really shown us that today. So thank you so much. John, good luck with your um, best-selling New York Times book. Um, and Samantha, we look forward to having you back with your next best-selling book. Thank you both. Have a good day. And thank you to our audience. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. We hope it made your day a little brighter, a little clearer, and a little more informed. Join us next time for the newest installment of Vital Interest Podcast. In the meantime, feel free to send us your questions at vitalinterestpodcast.org and to follow us on Twitter at VI underscore podcast CNS. And make sure to check out our daily morning brief, our weekly cyber brief, and our Vital Interest online forum at Center on National Security. Dot org. Have a wonderful week and please stay safe.